Duncan. James. How are you? I'm good, dude. How are you? I'm excited. So, welcome to Klaus. <laughs> excited? It's this very exciting time. We're always talking about something new and interesting and exciting for me. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Uh, welcome to Cloud Tricks, a podcast where Duncan and I, um, who have been lifelong friends, uh, like to talk about something interesting that we found uh, in our day-to-day readings or just in our uh, in our travels. And so this episode, we're going to talk about how to be great. So spoiler alert, Duncan and I don't necessarily know how to be great. So if you're looking for any kind of uh, great secrets to life, you may or may not find them here. But this was actually a, um, an article written by um, a fellow called Stephen Smith that looks at um, greatness in, a, in a, this particular sense as maybe it's just about being good repeatedly. Hmm. Yeah, um, I think it's a... It's a... A bit of a maybe we won't call this how to be great. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, yeah. But, oh, there's one answer. Um, but um, a sort of a quote which I sort of find fun is it's easier to be smart by not being dumb. By Charlie Munger. How are you going to say Munger, James? This is great. We cracked it. <laughs> okay, so we talked before we start the episode, and I'll have to um, fess up that I was calling him Charlie Munger. Munger. <laughs> oh God, it's not uh, good. It's yeah. not good. But um, but um, the the reason why we um, mentioned Charlie Munger yeah. is because um, of the quote that he makes in um, when people try to ask him about what the secret to his and uh, Warren Buffett's uh, success is. So for, for anyone who doesn't know, I think I just Charlie, said this quote. Are you going to say it again? Well, so I'm bringing it back around. And okay. It's just about the secret to our success. He would say is not that we do anything particularly of a high degree of intelligence. It's just that we don't do anything stupid over a long period of time. Yeah, I think they're both incredibly self-deprecating, Munger and Buffett. Um, and I think they both really enjoy what they do. It's clear. Um, mm. They work all the time. They laugh, um, but. And I think they sort of claim that they're not special. And mm. I think it's quite clear that they're both geniuses. <laughs> um, so perhaps this is part of their charm of seeming like, I don't know, they're purport to be sort of normal people, but mm. I don't think there's too much normal about them. Well, um, I mean, like, yeah, it's part of that humility. But when you really look at what they're trying to say, I don't know about you, Duncan, but... Being consistently not dumb is super hard for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, case in point, I will mispronounce something every second or third sentence. It's like, I can't <laughs> seem to finally break Manga. through that mold. <laughs> okay, um, so before we jump into this, um, this is just an oversimplification. You can be great mentally or you can be great physically. Um, in the past, physically was probably more important. You had to catch animals and or defend the tribe. Might was right, um, but for the vast majority of people now, they do jobs that really involve their mind. How good you can sit in a chair isn't really going to necessarily make you good at your job. Um, and how well you can commute to work isn't probably going to make you so good at your job. So it's mainly mental based. Um, and so we were basically going to just go off, well, how do you upgrade the, your mental side? Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things which Buffett and Munger do is they read all the time. Um, and so Munger is on record as saying that his family calls him a book with legs. So basically, <laughs> he's just doing this. And then Buffett um, supposedly, you know, reads for three quarters of his day. So I don't know how hours he actually works. Let's just call it eight hours. Um, he would read for six hours. He just sits there reading. And then he has two hours of meetings. And that's what he's done for 70 years. And so, I don't know, James and I read quite a lot. Um, and for me... It's incredible how much value reading has done. You know, it's good to learn from your mistakes. It's better to learn from others. That's a Buffett quote. And <laughs> books are accumulated wisdom. It's an opportunity to have a discussion with a mind that you normally wouldn't get access to. Maybe you're someone fancy and you can go and speak to these people, but or maybe they're not even alive any longer. But for the cost of like you know ten dollars, you can go and speak with someone. Like books are the most incredible bargain going around. Mm. No, absolutely. I'm just hearing you say that like six hours of an eight hour day spent reading um you know it sounds like a pretty plum geek to me <laughs> <laughs> also happens to be like the richest person on earth <laughs> yeah exactly so that can that can be reassuring for anyone who does like to you know um to read as part of um you know their learning journey so to speak so james you know how have you found reading um so one of the things um naval ravikant um is a person like and he said that 
what you should do for children is to get them interested in reading. It doesn't matter how or where. And he said for him it started with comic books and then comic books went into sci-fi and then sci-fi went into science and then science went into philosophy, I believe. Mm. Um, and that, yeah, it's just discovering the love of readings and, and learning, you know, then it's just effectively upgrading your mind. So, yeah, how have you found reading? Yeah, so I think I've had a very close relationship to reading my um the entire life that I can at least recall. Uh, so similar to the example you gave, like for much of my early um, you know, childhood years, it was definitely comic books um, because I could feel the richness of you know the story being told or the um, you know the challenges that heroes were facing and all of that kind of stuff. And there was a lot of depth and scientific. Um, well, a lot of it was science fiction, but there was a lot of um, you know scientific concepts. Scientific. Scientific. Scientific concept um, that I learnt about through reading comics, um, and so that kind of started my relationship with actually finding out about these things that you know do exist out in the world. Um, you know, just something simple as an example, like space travel. Or, um, <laughs> really, yeah, and the concept well, is simple. The act of you know getting it done is not so simple, yeah. Here, but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, so but then you've got things like traveling at the speed of light, or yeah. what's a con- quantum drive, or um, I can't remember yeah. what it is, but basically where you compress space and time to be able to travel very fast. I know there's a word for it, yeah, for wormhole or something. Uh, well, there, yes, it does use wormholes. So, like, there's, there's actual real science out in the real world um, that just that. Um, explores these concepts and so I've transitioned from comic book world to actually reading about this in real life. So I remember when um, you were young, James used to um, keep his comic books and he would tell me that one day, Duncan, these comic books would be worth a lot of money. Is that true, James, or are they not worth anything? They're worth a lot to me. (laughs) No, but you used to seriously like, Duncan, this comic book will one day be worth like a thousand dollars and I was like, oh, because we're like single digit humans, but they're basically worth nothing. Is that that the truth? (laughs) No, that's not the truth. They're worth at the very least what I paid for them. <laughs> <laughs> Which is nothing because your dad or mum bought them for you. <laughs> but, okay. um, but no, that um, they do actually have a worth. But I would be much happier to be in a situation where I did not feel like I needed to sell them in all order right. to realise their value. Cool. Um, so I suppose the first thing is that not all books are born equal. Um, so for some reason, people would say, I don't know, that if you spent a day reading a book, good day. If you spent a day binge watching Netflix, you wasted your day. Good day. To, to, <laughs> but like, to me, it's all just communication. And one happens to be in words on a page and one happens to be in video format. Mm, mm. Um, I think one of the things which has happened with the, so with like on-demand Netflix, etc., you now have much, much, much longer series. If you didn't, you didn't used to have that because if you had that slot at 7.30 and it was gone and they were trying to basically cater to a lot of people. So they had much smaller, shorter things. And now you'll have some series, you know, they're 60 hours long. And so that's as much, you know, time as you can get in a mega book. Like, um, what's War and Peace? The longer it starts, you know, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Is that War and Peace? Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, so that's like an epically long book. And so basically, the bigger the canvas you have, the more you can do character development, story development, all these things. Um, and so to me, a good book is just as good as good Netflix. And a bad book is just as bad as bad Netflix. And there isn't mm. a distinction. And I feel like society kind of judges one as, oh, yeah, read a book. That's good. Oh, watch yeah. Netflix for six hours. You wasted your day. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I, I'm, um, I'm glad you picked up at that at the end there, in that um, making a distinction between the channel in which you learn something um, doesn't necessarily have a considerable impact. Uh, and this was something that uh, Barbara Oakley, so my new favorite human who I've discovered <laughs> recently, um, talked about in one of her interviews recently, whereby a lot of people would say that, oh, I'm a visual learner or I'm a... Um, That's being totally uh, debunked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and one of the quotes that she said that she liked saying, it's like, so um, I'm a kinetic learner, I think is the word. Um, and what that means is that I learn with my hands. Like I learn... Kinesthetic, you know, I think it is. Kinesthetic, thank you, Duncan. Um, and so Barbara would say, like, the only thing I know about those people is that they know what the word kinesthetic means. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so as you said, Duncan, that theory's been totally debunked. So if you're watching something on Netflix that's a great quality, um, you know, documentary or something that has really good, insightful learning to it, then that you're getting just as much value for the time you're spending doing that as you are reading a good book. 
Yeah. Um, so just to touch on that point, like there's different types of learning, kinesthetic, you know, doing hands. But if you, if you want to learn about tennis, don't go and write essays about it. Go and get a tennis racket and swing the tennis racket. So basically, mm. you need to do the stuff that you're trying to do. And and if you're trying to learn maths, don't get up and do interpretive dance. It's not going to work very well. And so, oh, well. Th- it's, it's, it, <laughs> especially if it's me, it would be the worst thing that's ever been seen. Um, so even then, like you can learn so much from a good fiction book. Mm. You, someone who's a good writer can help you empathize with somebody and learn something without having to have gone through that experience. So you can mm. broaden your understanding of emotional, you know, instances and all these things. And just exactly the same as a fiction, you know, TV show. Mm. So uh, I don't know. West Wing is my favorite of all time. It does lots of things. Edification, so it's a moral instruction, character development, learning about actual, you know, polit- politics, and it all tastes good. Mm. And so some TV, again, it's not great. Yeah. <laughs> and some some books not great and it's yeah. not just you know, so it's literally to me it's medium agnostic but there is some sort of like well this medium's good and this medium's bad um but yeah all right so um to bring it back to the article and what um one of the key tenets it explored was that greatness is not instantaneous and so one of the things that i really um you know, think about when they when they mention you know this idea that you can't have instantaneous greatness, is the power of compounding interest, right? So you you think about people like Albert Einstein, who's been said to have called uh, compounding interest uh, the most powerful force in the universe. Then you stand up and take notice. Um, but it's not just a financial tool; it can be uh, argued to be a model for life itself. And so, just as we've been talking about now with regard to learning. There's also a compounding effect to learning, I think, that would actually have um, a lot of application here. Yeah. Um, one thing before we just go on is like, so comics, um, there are two major comic houses, DC, which is like Superman and Marvel, which is like the Avengers, Iron Man, etc. Well done, and, Logan. Very good. No, but not, not everyone knows that. Um, and basically, DC was a mega, mega market share leader. And then in the 50s, Marvel came and what they did is they made the comic stories far, far, far deeper. So there was character development and there was all of the, you know, people, I don't know, having hardship and all those things. And so it went from being, look at these, I don't know, pictures of someone running around and punching someone or whatever else it is, to actually being about character development. And so I think comics might be looked down on as a very low form of reading. <laughs> um, but again, it depends on about. the comic. And specifically, Marvel went from being, you know, I don't know, minority market share to much bigger than DC by making their comics far more edifying. Yeah, so I completely agree. So it's not just the the medium in terms of, um, you know, how you read particular comic book versus novels, Um, but there are definitely examples within the comic literature, such as like the, the, the Watchmen, which won um, a slew of awards, including the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and so this was something that had a much different... What's the Watchmen need- for the uninitiated? Okay, so the Watchmen is a, a story written back in the mid-80s about a, a, um, like a group of superheroes who aren't necessarily super. Um, it's an alternate reality so just where... Heroes. Just heroes. Good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but they all dress up in you know, owl costumes and the like. Uh, but basically, it's kind of a, a pseudo-political thriller where it's looking into um, where we had a doomsday clock and how heroes were contending with the changing political landscape around um, rising tensions between two world superpowers. Um, it's, a, it's a fantastic read. Uh, it does have one godlike superhero in it that does make things interesting, Dr. Manhattan. Um <laughs> But again, it, it goes into a lot of very deep and rich context around not just the individual's heroes themselves, but much larger, um, you know, sociological implications as well. Yeah. Um, another book that's quite famous is called The Complete Mouse. Uh, it's not M-A-U-S. I'm sorry if there's some other thing, which is basically a cartoon or sort of your comic, but it's on the Holocaust. Um, and I know that in a number of schools in Australia, they study this. Um, and... It's, you know, very light on words, um, but obviously it's a pretty hectic topic. And people have said that this was actually a really good way to have a sort of 
you know, parable with, with mice and other things and, and sort of going through it. So basically, I don't know, the medium, just because it's even got pictures with books and not many words, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to be able to help you learn a lot of things. Mm. Um, so jumping on to James's next point, everything compounds. So I sort of like to think of knowledge is basically two things. One, you've got a piece of knowledge. How much can you join it onto something else? Mm. So if I get a piece of knowledge and I can't join it onto anything else, it's not very valuable. Yeah. But if I can join it onto lots of things, it's much more valuable. So everything compounds, basically. What you can learn is a function of what you know. The more you know, the more you can learn. So for instance, if James likes sport and I don't like sport, and we read an article on sports ball, then James will, for instance, see five facts in the sports ball article, and I'll see three facts. And the reason he can see five is he's got all this knowledge in his head, so he can see things pop out, which I wouldn't see. And then each fact that he gets he can join on to more other facts in his head. So first of all, he gets five because you've got more knowledge in your head. I get three. Then each fact can be joined onto more things. So let's say he can join each fact onto three things and I can join each fact onto two things. So each fact means more to James. Mm. And then your point of forgetting, so how fast you forget, is how meaningful something is to you. So the, for instance, the more value this point has, James has three connections, he will forget it slower. I have two, I'll forget it faster. So knowledge simply does compound. The more you know, the more you can learn. Right. So uh, to learn and to learn well consistently uh, in this regard, as the way you put it, Doug, like it fits the model of compounding returns because when you attain a new nugget of insight or knowledge that doesn't just sit there in your brain collecting dust, it can be used to further develop understanding and insights in other areas. This, like I, I see as being tantamount to your interest starting to earn interest, which is what they kind of say is at the foundation of a compounding return rate. Um, but, you know, so it's, it's not magic or anything, um, you know, woo-woo. It's all about the sooner you start, the better it works. So instead of thinking of something being great as instantaneous, if you look at the compounding effect, which has already been described as the greatest power in the universe, um, this can be a helpful explainer, I find. Yeah, um, so they say with kids, first you learn to read, then you read to learn. Um, and I think you can apply this concept that you're going to have some minimum sort of, you know, literacy, if you want to call that, or fluency, to be able to access things. So when I was 20, I found the world boring. But what I realized in hindsight is it was boring because I didn't understand it, not because it was actually inherently boring. I think now the world's inherently fascinating. But if you don't understand anything, or at least for me, it's not interesting. And so slowly, you learn to read, then you read to learn. I've slowly been able to get to the point where I can access different parts. So one of the first parts is I got to sort of minimum literacy in economics and financial markets. So I could start to understand, I worked in finance in my first job, what they're talking about when they're talking about share prices moving and what they're talking about when you value a company and what the Reserve Bank is doing. But before that, it was just gibberish. Like, yes, they're human speaking English, but literally understood 0% of it. And so what I've sort of found is that you need to get to minimum literacy in different areas. And then it's like, okay, politics is another one. I didn't, they would, some politicians are speaking, I don't understand um, anything <laughs> that's coming out of their mouths, you know what I mean? And I've slowly learned more. And so it goes from just being totally boring, quote, I don't understand anything, or, so, you know, or, or to now I've slowly gotten to minimum literacy, minimum fluency in more and more verticals or like, you know, economics, politics, geopolitics, education, startups you know, philosophy, etc. that now I can access most things. So I'll be able to listen. I won't get 100% of it, but I was getting 0% of it before. <laughs> um, 100%. So, like, part of the journey of learning, like, and, um, like, like you mentioned, you first you learn to read, then you read to learn. Like, I can remember parts of that journey and how frustrating it was. And I think of it similar to, um, you know, when you're very unfit, and just starting out on your uh, your exercise regime and going for a run and how utterly, utterly unbearable that experience can be. But as you continue your journey to improve your fitness, running actually stops becoming painful and it starts becoming enjoyable and then even uh, you know more so it can become an ability for you to unlock other parts of your mind in the way you think. And it's the same for me um, for learning. Like I can remember parts of learning where it was a 
it was an absolute toll on my on on me trying to get myself across to a point where I understood it well enough. Whereas now, um, given the luxury that I have in learning what I'm interested in, but even then, I feel like it's such a joy uh, bringing new thoughts, new ideas, new insights to light, and actually being able to tie them together to other areas. Duncan. Yeah. So I thought I'd just say one thing, like. The percentage of books that I used to read, like the, the breadth, was incredibly narrow. <laughs> and now, I, I, I don't know, I've subscribed to 120 podcasts. Um, I read books from all over the place. And so, James, do you think it's fair to say for you, because I would say that I used to find basically a very, very narrow band of things interesting. It was kind of like, you give me a sugar high. So I, when I was younger, I used to read like Tom Clancy's Spy Thrillers. Um, and aside from that, but not reading, <laughs> you know, um, but, but now I read anything, um, not anything, but like, I can't recall the last book that I wasn't learning something from and finding interesting. So if you found the same, basically well, a very, very narrow amount that you found interesting and now almost everything you find interesting. Well, so like maybe discard in the first 10 years of my life where you know, I, had a, <laughs> I had a very narrow worldview. Um, I think I was a little bit different in you in the sense that I never really went truly deep on any one area. And I was more of a, you know, I was curious about being curious. And so I like, so that's how I kind of branched out into areas like philosophy, like um, astrophysics, like quantum physics. And, it, you know, if well, you when want did, to when did you get into quantum here, physics? I got into quantum physics uh, in my mid-teenage years. Like, what? So the first, well, comic books, Duncan. Ant-Man okay. goes to the quantum realm. Uh, so, when like, you, so when you were reading about what? quantum physics, where were you reading about this? In a comic book or were you reading about it in like a, another book? So I'll discover it in comic books. I'll yeah. discover like people who would go to the quantum world and I'm like, what is this nonsense? Like, <laughs> And so then I would um, obviously not Google because Google wasn't around back then. But <laughs> <laughs> Open the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> but, but there was a book, um, uh, I think at, at the school library called Schrodinger's Cat. Now, Schrodinger's cat. Whatever. So I would say that Charlie Munger is one of the most famous people on earth. I don't know if that's perhaps overstating it. And no. you call him Munger. Munger. <laughs> and Schrodinger's cat is one of the very famous concepts. Like, is the cat dead or alive? And please say how you said it again. All right. Well, at least you don't even know how to phrase it but properly because the cat is both dead and alive. Yes, I know. Dead. But is the cat dead and alive? That's the paradox. Or that's the question. No, how is the cat both dead and alive? Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Whatever. So you can, you I can put more. you the pronunciation. People, but you can, you, people think I know what I'm talking about. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No, 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 yeah that's true. So you were reading about Schrodinger's cat in when you were 15. Yeah, but like you said, Duncan, yeah, we, like, uh, but I read it and I probably comprehended like, you know, maybe 5% of it, <laughs> um, you know, because that was another thing, um, you know, quite the great Einstein, like those who are not utterly horrified by the laws of quantum physics simply do not understand it. Um, and there are definitely parts that I recall now that do make me think like, how is that even possible? But I'm still not at the level where I am like in constant and perpetual horror of it. <laughs> so mm. I obviously don't understand it well enough. But yeah, so like, I was, um, I was kind of going much wider, but not as deep. I think. Cool. So basically, reading is super sweet. <laughs> I remember <laughs> this is like um, one of the things I was like, I could have a girlfriend, or I could read. I'm like, reading. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, brother. Because I'm quite busy, or at least I, you know, I work quite a lot. And the, the joy that I get from reading is indescribable. It's like just unbelievable. And if you had told, I don't know, 15-year-old Duncan this, because like, the books that I read were like forced upon me by school when you was reading some novel that I just did not like. And then I did a tiny bit of like spy thriller stuff. So I didn't really start reading until I was 22. But now, basically, everything I learn I, I unlocks 1.1 new things to learn. Like, mm. and, so, and everything sort of slowly becomes more interesting. So yeah, I was learning about one vertical. There are sort of cross-parallel links from farm, farm, I don't know, stock analysts into economics, and then economics into politics, and then politics into geopolitics, and then geopolitics into philosophy. And so it basically means that everything's more interesting. So the more you can join, so if you only know about finance, it's not nearly as interesting as if you know about finance and economics. Mm. And if you only know about finance and economics, it's not as if you put politics there. And then you've got linkages going all across the place. And so 
basically, I went from finding everything boring as a 20-year-old to now finding almost everything interesting. Now, I'm not saying I understand 100% of it, but I understand more than 0% of it. Yeah. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> um, percent. But like, um, so you know, just to tie these two concepts together, you mentioned like you know, one point one percent of learning. Like, so every time you read a book, and let's just say, um, you know, you read a book once a week, um, and it's, I, I don't know about you, Duncan, but I've certainly read books where my incremental uh, units of learning was a lot more than just ten percent. But let's go with ten percent. So if you read a book every week and improve yourself by ten percent. You're 120% better by the end of the year that you started. That's not but, compounding, dude. You've got to compound. It's all right, so I haven't 1. got the decimal. 1.1 to the power of 52. It's way more than that. All right, so sorry. One book a month. One book a month. Bad, bad math, James. <laughs> well, even even right. if you do 12, that's still 213% or 14%. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's 14%. That's right. Um, but, like, no, 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 you go... Two, you oh, go oh, but, but by year five, it's, like, it's over 900%, or let's just round it up 10x, Right. Um, and so I think we can probably say that there are even times where like, I can confidently say right now that I'm at least 3x better now than I, when I started my current role at BCG because of what I've been learning. Cool. Um, this is one of the things I think is really interesting. If somebody was 100 times stronger than a normal person walking down the street, you would be able to tell, right? But if somebody knows 100 times more, or for instance, they're 100 times better at innovating like Elon Musk is, or I think he's 1,000 times better, or they're a thousand times better at writing like J.K. Rowling. You can't tell because you can't see the inside of the mind. They just look like a human on the outside. Mm. But you can cultivate your mind. I think there are physical limits, you know, for instance, how fast you can run or whatever else it is. But your mind, as far as I'm aware, in, in some things like creativity, etc., is just unconstrained. Mm. And so each incremental unit of knowledge that you add is on top of the other ones, but it links to them. So it's got more linkages. So it makes the current one more valuable, but it also makes all of your old ones more valuable. Yeah. So it's kind of a multiplier effect both ways. Mm. And so the more you know, each unit that you learn, the more you learn. Yeah, completely agree. Um, so I just want to talk about one, uh, one other concept um, that has application to this idea of you know, compounding your growth when it comes to something like learning or in this case, greatness. And it's the, the idea of continuous versus discrete. So if, if you haven't heard of these two terms, it's basically there are two types of numbers or you can split numbers into two types in this regard. One is discrete, which is individually separate and distinct. So one, two, three, four, five. They're, they're distinct numbers. But continuous is, is, is uh, defined by forming an unbroken whole without interruption. So what this means is for something that's continuous, there's nowhere along the spectrum within, quote, the whole, that you can point to and say, there, that's where A changed to B, or the single instance that caused a desired result occurred at this point. Um, and so this was really explained well by someone called Simon Sinek, uh, if you've not heard of The Power of Why. Um, so he you know, gained a lot of prominence and popularity recently. But when he's talking about relationships, uh, he uses a similar um, description where he talks about some things that are only possible or can only be realized through consistent application and repetition. Now, can you repeat that? I don't really think I understand. Some things, can, can you explain that last bit again? Least, okay, so, uh, yeah. all right, no, no, um, we'd be glad to. So I'll say it again. So that um, when you talk about things like relationships or uh, your physical health, or in this case, greatness, something can only be realized through consistent application and repetition. So the example he gives, and he asked um, the person interviewing you, do you love your wife? And he said, yes. And he goes, prove it. Like, what's the metric? Give me the number that tells me um, that I know that. Because, you know, when you met her, you didn't love her. Now you do. So tell me the day that it happened. It's an impossible question. Right? So what he's talking about is not about the fact that you work towards a certain point and then suddenly the flick switched and then, you know, you're, you loved your wife. The flick switched. It's <laughs> a good spinner, isn't it? The switch flipped. Oh, <laughs> uh, dear. Um, so it's talking about, uh, you know, a consistent regime. It's the things you do every single day on a repeated scale for, you know, the entirety of the time that you've known this person. And all of that builds up to, 
you know, having this realization that you're in a loving relationship. Does that help? I think so. And so would the parable here be that, you know, I think we're sort of talking about this. You know, most things is now mental. Uh, your job is not physical, but also how you interact with people. Um, so I would say that James and I can have very, very edifying, rewarding conversations, um, and at least for me. <laughs> um, and we're thinking about esteem, you know, self-actualization, you know, transcendence, if you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And that's because we're not just talking, you know, to each other so we're not bored or not lonely. We're actually learning from each other, and we're sort of having this interplay. So, you know, what I call interthinking. Oh, there's a book called Interthink. I didn't make it up, but basically where <laughs> you thinking with somebody else, a good collaboration is one plus one is three into thinking is good collaboration where you get an outcome that you wouldn't have otherwise had before. And so maybe I'm sort of going to like switch into this. I think different modes of building your mind are reading, thinking, writing, talking, and building. And so I'll sort of go through reading is like gathering ingredients. Thinking is like, well, putting those ingredients, you know, joining them onto different things or understanding it a bit more or categorizing things into place. You know, writing is thinking to me. It's just thinking in a far more strategic fashion. Um, so they say you've only got four working slots of memory. And so if you're thinking about a problem with more than four pieces, you can't comprehend it properly in your mind. So if you've ever thought about something and you just get more and more confused the more you think about it, mm. that's probably because it's got more than four pieces. And so you're, you're analyzing four. And then what about this piece? And you put a fifth one in, but one pops out. And then the synthesis, the summary changes. Then you add another one in, another one pops out. And so it's like, what's going on here? I'm just getting more confused. <laughs> and, and what I found is that, that if those problems I write down, then I can put the pieces on a page and I can see that they're like, okay, there's seven pieces. Now I can try to actually see how they work. Hmm. Talking is, you know, thinking, but with somebody else. So I basically try to start a conversation with James and then he will return something. And it doesn't, you don't know where you're going. And then building, you might be building a business or you're building a product or whatever else it is. So it's applied knowledge. So these are all building your mind. So those are the sort of five modalities I think of. Reading, thinking, writing, talking, building. Five years ago, Duncan only did reading and building. Building might be your job. Uh, my job was to start up. So I was having to build something. It wasn't just doing, you know, follow the, the steps or the recipe for someone else. But I don't think I did much thinking, writing, or talking. And so I've massively upped those three modalities. So you mentioned this earlier um, in our discussion, but where would you put something like practice in that, in that model? Uh, okay, so it depends what you're talking about practice. So building, um, to me, would be partially in there. Um, but writing, to me, is practicing mm. problem solving. So whether you're writing, in, I don't know, a poem, you're solving a problem to try to get some sort of thought about the world out of there. Or if you're reading a book, and it might be on fiction, you're solving a problem to try to convey how people are feeling and interacting and hoping that others can empathize with what you're saying so they can sort of, you know, see what's going on. So... Everything is just thought uh, that's come out. So a table mm. is thought with wood and, well, it depends what your table's made of, you know, <laughs> wood and nails and stuff, right? And, and and a computer is thought that's come with, you know, a microprocessor and, and a screen, etc. Mm. And so writing is just, or it depends, you know, text. Um, it's just all thought. To me, everything mm. is, is a version of thought. This happens to be actualized mm. sometimes in a physical thing and sometimes mm. it's actualized in an idea. Mm. Absolutely. No. Um, so one of the things I appreciate about writing now um, more than I have before is uh, was explained awesome to me. It is. <laughs> well, it was explained best to me by um, Jordan Peterson when um, he was talking to his students at university, where he says like, "Okay, so you're at university. You need to learn. So what do you do? You read first. Okay, now what? So, okay, so now you need to write. Well, why do I need to write? So that you can show what you've learned, so that you can get good grades." He's like, "No." Jordan Peterson contends you need to write so that you can learn how to think. Yes. Uh, and that to him was the most powerful way in which you can navigate yourself in the world. Because by writing things down, you forced yourself, or at least it's my understanding, you're forcing yourself to no longer have your thoughts um, sit comfortably in an abstracted state. But now you actually have to have a physical representation of that in, in words or in, di or in diagrams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, everyone listening, that's an old joke. Um, but yeah, so by writing, um, it's kind of like um, you know, writing a report. You're forcing yourself to represent your understanding of something in a physical form. And I really appreciate your answer, Duncan, that writing is, is actually practice. Because I'm sure if you wanted to get better at tennis, you wouldn't just write. You would 
go and pick up a racket, as you said. But in this sense, it's probably maybe more intellectual or conceptual that writing serves the purpose of building on your knowledge. Yeah, that's a really good point. It depends what you're doing. But I'm sort of saying, like, the vast majority of jobs are mental. Now, some of them are repetitive, but the repetitive mental jobs are being replaced by machines. So mm. the non-repetitive ones, you need to think. And so you need to solve things. Um, so to me, yeah, if I was wanting to be a great tennis player, I think doing huge amounts of writing is probably not going to be the world's best way to, to, to get better. But probably also doing zero writing would be not good because I need to think about, well, how's my headspace and am I approaching this stuff and I'm going to re-watch my game and I'm going to write down the things I didn't like that I did. Hmm. Um, to me, writing, so reading is like gathering ingredients. Writing, I don't write something I already know. I, writing is a journey. It's an adventure. I don't know where I'm going to end up. I typically have a problem that I don't understand and then I just start writing and the writing is the solution. The writing solves what it is. So I used to read, I don't know, a medium post three years ago and be like, oh, that's really insightful. And I don't have insightful thoughts. And what I've realized, maybe some people do, I can basically only generate insight by writing. So I don't have an insight, then I write it down. I have a problem I don't know the answer to, then I write and hopefully the act of writing generates an insight or aka solution to that problem mm. Mm. and so you've got ingredients that you gather from reading and then writing is joining those ingredients together into new ingredients or making them into a recipe and so it's an incredible way to basically level your mind up mm. that's just really interesting how you've made the observation that the way that you can best generate insights or at all the only way by, <laughs> the only way is through writing um yeah. no, 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 and, and talking yeah, and talking. Um, I, I think talking is a lot more obvious because when you're talking with someone, then you're sharing information with someone who has their own set of information that might not be available to you. And so by sharing two um, views on a, or two views on a particular topic, that can generate insights. Like we've done, in my estimation, many times by having these conversations. Yeah. Um, but like, so in my experience, Running for me has had a tangible impact on my ability to generate insights. I can not count the number of times that I've been faced with either a problem or just something that I'm contending with. And simply by the act of going for a run, it will, um, it will manage itself to go through either um, my uh, brain going into diffusive mode of thinking mm. or just synthesizing itself um, you know, through chunking, which is a practice that Barbara Oakley talks about in her Learning How to Learn course. Um, the most popular or most downloaded course online in the world, um, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But top having... 10. Top 10? That's enough. Uh, but having the act of running um, will produce tangible results in my ability to generate new thoughts and insights that I'm literally, like, in the middle of my run going, oh, my God, that is amazing. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I think, so I, sh I should recant what I said before. I think I have ideas when reading. I think I have ideas when thinking. I think I have ideas when writing. I think I have ideas when talking. And I think I have ideas when building. But writing is probably the one where I get the most by a country mile. Like it, it gives me as much ideas as the rest of them put together. Mm. Um, what James is talking about is that they talk about two types of thinking, diffuse and concentrated. So concentrated, you're sitting at your desk, you're writing something, you're sort of thinking about it. But have you ever had an idea when you're in the shower and you're like, ah, or whatever it else is, or when you're going for a run? Um, and so you can basically get yourself into diffuse thinking mode. So if I'm really logged jams on a product, uh, uh, like an idea, I'll do one of the following. I'll talk to somebody else and I'll just, I'll just talk through and then they will point out a flaw in my logic or they'll add a new ingredient and then I'm all of a sudden I've solved it. Or I will go and I will go for a walk. So... What this means is I just walk and I try to walk mindfully, slowly think about, you know, my feet feeling on the ground, other stuff. And seriously, I've never had to walk for more than five minutes. So basically, I'm switching into diffuse thinking mode. I'm not concentrating on problems, solve the problem, solve the problem. I'm just starting to think about sort of nothing. So there's your conscious and your subconscious. And then your subconscious does something. I don't know how and what, but this is like literally like a medically researched thing. And then you do what's called diffuse thinking. And then the idea comes. And then I just pull out my phone, write down the idea, turn around and go back to the office. It's unbelievable. Mm. It's one of the best hacks ever. So if you're stuck on a problem, go for a walk. Don't be reading your phone for emails. Don't be listening to podcasts. Just nothing. Slow, mindful walking where you can feel your feet on the ground. And seriously, without fail, idea solution within five minutes. Right. So, yeah, um, completely agree in terms of the power of 
moving yourself away from you know concentrated thinking in order for you to be able to you know create new nuggets of insights and and, th- and so this is actually specifically um, what they were talking about in learning how to learn uh, which is your your brain which has two modes concentrated and diffuse but the power of um, going from concentrated to diffuse is what uh, Barbara explains as your brain's ability to transmute information from your neocortex at the front of the brain where you do the conscious thinking down into the hippocampus. And it's only when it's in the hippocampus can it actually start stringing things together in a way in which you haven't considered. And so this is why things like the power of sleeping is an incredible boost for anybody's learning capacity because, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but if um, if my understanding is correct, by sleeping, your brain goes into the diffusive state in, on a different um, unconscious level. But by then, it strings all of your new pieces of information together. And that's why sometimes when you wake up in the morning, you can just go back and look at the problem with fresh eyes. And suddenly, you'll have a much higher understanding of how you can actually resolve that problem. Yeah, there's many sort of weird things. Um, one of my favorite stories about this diffuse thinking stuff was Thomas Edison, uh, you know, inventor of the light bulb and the phonograph. And before you go to sleep, you know how your mind will sort of have ideas? And so he used to sit in a chair and he'd have a ball in his hand and he would attach the ball to a string into his finger. And as he was drifting off, he would slowly let go of the ball and then it would fall and pull his finger and jolt him awake. And then the idea that he had, he would write down. And then he would grab the ball again and be like drifting off to sleep and then he would think. So there's your brain shifting into a different sort of thought pattern mode and it mm. pieces things together. And so he hacked how to be in that mode, not then fall asleep um, and forget it and then write it down. So basically, we figure out what, how your biology is <laughs> um, and <laughs> how, how your mind works. Now, obviously, the mind is not, people don't understand it 100%, but they also don't understand it 0%. And I think James and I are both saying, you know, there's a lot of research around diffuse versus concentrated thinking. And that one of your hacks to get diffuse thinking is going for a run and you just have heaps of ideas. One of my hacks is just going for a walk, um, which is good because I don't have to get into exercise gear or whatever. I can just literally walk out the front of the office and wander down the street. Um, and, you know, some people it's in the shower, whatever else it is. But I can turn on diffuse thinking now. It's like literally just, okay, well, I've got to try a different approach. So I'm not solving the problem by thinking more or writing more or talking more. It's time for a different approach. So Mm. I'm having a problem. I'm like, okay, I'm thinking, I'm talking, I'm writing. Now I've got a new tool in my toolkit, diffuse thinking. Right. So I think um, if I were to paraphrase, the first part of, um, you know, exploring this concept of, you know, how to be great, (laughs) uh, which is uh, applying yourself consistently over time. I think as Duncan, you and I have discussed here, you know, learning is a really great exemplar of that ability to do something and do something consistently to have compounding returns over a period of time. So I think there's that that continuous application there. But then the 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 article that um, this was regarding this concept then asks, okay, so it's continuous, but greatness is also earned. So how do you earn greatness? Well, the article says. Um, maybe you should reframe the question, how do I become good in life? Or even how do I become decent and focus on developing those habits uh, repeat over time? So one of the things I want to try and look at is what are the habits of progression that we're implementing here? So there's learning and there's reading and there's applying those things. And I think, Duncan, that your model around, well, it's just not just reading, it's writing, it's it's thinking, it's discussing, and it's building. I think that's a really good example of one of the ways in which we can actually apply our learning in a productive way. Yeah. Um, I thought I'd go one layer deeper. Okay, well, you're writing or you're thinking, how do you do it? Um, So the first person that really I came across who talked about mental models was Charlie Munger. (laughs) Munger, sorry. (laughs) Coming out, James. Um, So Charlie Munger had a book written on him called Poor Charlie's Almanac. Um, Somebody compiled a compendium of different things that, um, did I just have a, two words that meant the same thing, compiled a compendium? Someone I think made so. a compendium. Yeah, great sentence. <laughs> of, of basically things that Charlie Munger had said. Um, it's called Poor Charlie's Almanac. Um, at the time, I would have said it's the best book I'd ever read because it changed the way that I looked at the world. And so he, I believe, says you need to have a bunch of mental models 
and he says you only need 80 to 100 of them. And I remember thinking, that's some inordinate number of models. <laughs> and then he's like, then you just use the appropriate ones to solve whatever problem that you need. And I'm like, okay, well, I've got zero models. <laughs> and, and now how am I going to know which one to use? Um, and so this was probably, I don't know, about 10 years ago where I found out about this book. Um, and it's bite. Like literally, it's better than all uni, my university degree. My university degree, I don't really rate very highly, even though like I went to a sort of you know decent union and did a good degree, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, now when you're thinking, you can think systematically, which he calls thinking with models or building models to have these things to help. And so now I think it's probably worth trying to explain sort of a couple of simple models and then you can like basically go and sort of level up massively from this stuff. So one is MISI, which is mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. So mm. if you're looking at a problem space, you need to break it down into pieces. So it's mutually exclusive, i.e. they're not overlapping with each other. And it's collectively exhaustive, i.e. it covers the entire problem space. And so if we're thinking about something, um, I don't know, when we make content at a roller, so I think about it in sort of three ways. What's the recipe, i.e. what is the actual, you know, what's it meant to look like? What is the quality? So are we on recipe? So we've got a great recipe, but then someone just makes something totally different. What is the speed? How fast do we make it? And then how much resourcing do we need? So that's my MEC, Mutual Assistive Collective Exhaustive Breakdown. Recipe, quality, speed, resourcing. And then you go, okay, well, is our recipe any good? Yes, no. And I believe the recipe is good. Okay, well, can we make the recipe at, you know, scale? Or is only one person able to make it and everyone else can't? Well, we had to build a whole lot of processes to help sure we ensure sure that people understood what to do and had checks in there. Okay, speed. Are we making it so that it's so long we're not going to get it done on time or we can't afford to do it? Okay, we've got this sort of happy medium of people doing it at a good pace. Now, how many people do we need? So I'm solving the problem of building content in a time and that's sort of the four pieces. Mm. So, um, I, and I think that's a very, very useful model. Um, and I, I know the Every first time I, yeah, the, yeah. the first time I heard it, I thought like that's something I need to uh, absorb into my recipe of, <laughs> of models so that I can yeah. get up to the to the the manga number. Let's call it. I reckon I'm well <laughs> past hundred now. I reckon I'd be like I create custom model every day now, pretty much. Oh well, you're writing about them, so one day we'll create the the Dum Dums al- almanac or something similar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, do you have a um, model for us, James, or do you think thinking with models is a big win? Yeah, no, thinking with models is definitely a big win because, uh, like, for me personally, Duncan, my brain likes to think in abstractions a lot more <laughs> than in detail, uh, and models are a very easy way for me to hold on to, um, you know, thinkings of the world in an abstract way. Like, you know, it's very similar to the map is not the territory. In the sense that, you know, to, in order to understand a particular area, like just having a mapping that you can apply to that particular area, remembering that, you know, um, oh God, Duncan, you're going to help me out here. Um, something well, works. Wrong, you no, 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 that one. That everything one, works somewhere, nothing yeah. works everywhere. Yeah, so everything works somewhere, nothing works everywhere. Love yeah. that quote. It's my, my new favorite. So you, um, it's important. The, the purpose manga makes about having you know, 80 to 100 is that, there's no one model for every single problem or no solution for every problem. Um, you've got to know the right one to apply. Um, yep. So understanding that lens, I think, is a very important reason why you need to have multiple models. Now, I know I've already been talking, but I do have a model that I can share he does, with you. He does on my phone. All right. So this concept of zero acceleration but non-zero velocity. All right. So How do you use you this find... in your life? Do you use this in your right. work? Yes, absolutely. I okay. use this in my work and in my life. All right, so before cool. you find a path that you want to double down on, yeah. right? You know, this habit of progressing takes the form of iteration. So if you're struggling to identify the right path, which is the right thing, um, right, which is the right road to go down, you need to create more nodes of optimization. All right, so if and you're more only nodes making, of optimization. Yeah, so if you're only what making is a, a change, node of optimization. Sorry. All right, so a node of optimization is basically a unit of um, progression that you're trying to make to in order to solve a problem. Uh, and so by doing it in more than one way, you're more likely to find the right path to go forward. All right? So if you're making more of these nodes in a much shorter time frame, then you're going to have more ability to find the right path for you to iterate down or would like to head down. All right? So let me let me try and put it in this way. You might ask what makes good good. 
right? Ask yourself the question, if I were to continue this every day for the next year, would I be in a better place? If the answer is yes, you have a path towards good. So once you've found your inputs, you're in a good place to turn those inputs into the right habit through a deliberate practice. All right, so if you haven't found what's good, then you change your node of optimization to a different uh, approach. And, you, and by doing it very, very small, so like you're not trying to find the pathway, like what's going to get me to, you know, the next year until you're in a place where you actually feel like that's a good fit. So it's like, another way of explaining it is the good to great uh, model of fire bullets and cannonballs. You know, when you want, yeah, so when you want to hit a good uh, a target, you don't put all of your investment in the first shot and then if you miss, you're screwed. You fire little bullets until you find that you've hit the target and then you fire the big cannonball. I'll just um, give you a couple more models um, of sort of things that I use. Um, so problem, solution, how, execution. So what is the problem? Then what is the solution? Then what is how? Then what is execution? So if you're working with somebody who's brand new, you might give them the problem, the solution, how, then they have to figure out execution. Or you just give them the problem and then the solution, and then they figure out how and execution. Or you give them the problem, then they figure out solution, how, execution, and sometimes you give them the space and they have to figure out the problem. Mm. Um, another one is like ice ranking, which is from other people, which is like impact, confidence, ease of execution. So there's three variables. So if you're trying to prioritize which you know projects to do, so you've got 10 projects, well, how do you go from top to bottom? So impact was how big is the impact going to be for this? How confident are you about that impact? Well, I think it's big, but low confidence versus a medium impact, high confidence. Well, that means the medium impact, high confidence might rank above the one which you think has a high impact, but low confidence. And then ease of execution is how much work is required. So the big, you know, high impact, low confidence one might be 10 weeks, but the medium impact, high confidence one might be one week. So then you sort of put it up to the top. Mm. Um, another one when I'm thinking about products is that I think products should have two deal makers. So if you don't have two deal makers, I don't want to build it. And it actually changed to two instantly recognizable, irrefutable deal makers. Can you so give us an example of a deal maker? Um, so, the, so this is the thing. So building a product is a deal, two deal makers minus no deal breakers. So, right. okay. so that's, yeah, so that's what I have. And um, yeah, so when I, I tell them at Rollo, <laughs> what's our new product? I'm like, well, have you got two instantly recognizable, irrefutable deal makers and no deal breakers? And they're like, I think I've got this nice to have. I'm like, it's not a deal maker, is it? Like nice to have? No, has to be a deal maker. So if you talk about, let's take an iPhone. I think deal maker is that it had the internet on it versus the other ones which didn't, you know, like a smart uh, Nokia, right? I think that a deal maker also is that it had apps, whereas the other one didn't. So to me, an iPhone, and even the very early ones, had two deal makers over the existing ones. And no, you know, yes, it costs much more than, or it depends what phone you bought, but, you know, average my iPhone was way more expensive than the standard phones beforehand. But people didn't care. It was worth it. So, yeah, for me, products, I don't want to build any product which doesn't have two deal makers and no deal breakers over whatever it's sort of coming along. Um, so, you're also pretty much always competing against something. So, someone's like, oh, there's no new product. I'm like, you're competing against time. There's only 24 hours in a day, and people have that time allocated to something. Maybe they're mm. bored and they actually want to do something. But for a lot of people, like James, do you have any spare time? No. So your product competes against time. <laughs> so you might only be able to get James to use it if you give him back time. Mm. So another one I have is what the hell are you replacing? <laughs> this is this thing, right? And does it have a deal breaker over this or two deal makers? Now, someone's like, oh, there's no product they're competing against. Yes, there is. There always is. Like what is the time that is being spent now? Where's that time coming from? Mm. Yeah, um, so that's actually quite reminiscent of a, of a product-based mental model, which is job to be done. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Clayton yeah. Christensen, represent. <laughs> I love him. Um, he's, he's, I think I've read every single book he's made. Um, so innovative he, Dilemma, I think you're referring to in this case. Uh, yeah, he started off in Innovative No, no, Jobs to be Done. Or maybe he did start there, but he wrote a book that was only on Jobs to be Done called Compete Against Luck, which mm. is wonderful. He also wrote a book called something, oh, God, it's about what matters or measure what matters um so mm. he got cancer um which is he got through it thankfully because we want people like him around um and it helped him readjust his priorities i think he would now this is paraphrasing i haven't read the book you know 10 years ago or something mm. focused a lot on work and i think he now thinks that he wouldn't have spent as much of his effort on work as opposed to other yeah yeah so, so just trying to help with um everyone and what the heck we're talking about um, in trying to understand a way to solve a customer's either 
current friction or nascent problem, the problem they don't even know they have yet, is understanding how a product serves a job that needs to be done by the customer. So to give you a really good uh, basic example, buying a milkshake is a job to be done for a customer who wants a milkshake. Uh, and so, <laughs> no, no, no um, what I'm getting to here is that yeah, why, they, why they use, like, so what is the job to be done for a milkshake? Other than to just have a nice, delicious, non-nutritious uh, <laughs> snack. Um, when they studied, they found out that um, what customers wanted was something to do on their long commute. Right? And so your job to be done is to provide something to fill that time and your belly, knowing that you're going to be hungry in the course of that long commute, in a very convenient and um, enjoyable way. And so Can I jump in quickly? Go right ahead. Yeah, so there were people that are going to work and they need a meal. And if you're trying to eat a hamburger, it's hard when you're driving. But if you had a milkshake in a cup, it was a much easier meal to eat than needing to have a hamburger, you know, two hands and holding it and everything going everywhere. And also, they liked that the milkshake was thick so that you didn't finish it in like, you know, one minute. Like it was a thick milkshake from McDonald's and it took them 20 minutes to get through. So that it was employed to feed them. It needed to feed them in a car. And they wanted it to last 20 minutes. So that's what the job it was doing. Mm-hmm. And it did a much better job at that than, you know, I don't know, a hamburger. Right. It was also like, like uber convenient because you could hold it in one hand and it was clean. It wouldn't yeah. crumble all over your lap. Yeah, that's the point. It, it was hard to break. eat a hamburger, you know, when you're driving. It doesn't go yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Exactly. So job to be done. Excellent mental model. <laughs> right, it's unbelievable. You, so you need to understand the job to be done for every single thing that you're doing, including yourself. So for Correct. instance, Duncan's job to be done on Saturdays is to relax. Okay. How to do that? Anyways, we're, we're getting close to the end. So let's do a summary. Um, I can go first. Um, basically, you can be good at physical or good at mental. And maybe if you're playing some sport like a team sport, you need to do a bit of both. Um, it doesn't really matter how physically good I am at work. Now, I don't want to be unhealthy, but it's mainly mental. So 99% mental. Um, for this, you need to read to gather ingredients from others. But then you need to think well. So it's reading, thinking, writing, talking, building. I make sure that I have a good balance between them. And, and talking... We haven't really gotten into how to talk well. Um, so interthinking is what my sort of way of expressing what quality collaboration is. We get one plus one is three. We kind of got into how to write and think well, which is basically using mental models. And you need to be able to first get all these ones from other people, just collect them. Um, Michael Simmons has got a bunch online. And then start to figure out when to use which one and then start to create your own ones. Um, and so to me, maybe we can talk about how to read another time. <laughs> um, I'll give you two cents. If you're reading a non-fiction book, what I do is I read the contents first. And so I understand the layout of the book. Then I'll try to find two summaries online and I'll read the summaries. Then what I try to do is I read the first uh, couple paragraphs of each chapter and the last couple paragraphs of each chapter. And then I read the book because I need to understand the map of the territory. So I'm building the bones of what it is. And then when I'm adding flesh to the bones, I understand the bigger picture. Whereas if I can't see the bigger picture, the information that I'm reading doesn't slot into anywhere. It's just a piece that's by itself. It's not building a picture. And so I found that that's a much, much better way to be able to get stuff out. Then the other thing I'll do is I try to write down a note or two every single chapter. So I just copy out a quote or something and then I dump it into a doc. And then on Saturday, I will actually go and write thoughts about that quote. So I'm sort of, you know, developing it. So that's how I read. Great. So, focus of this uh, discussion was how to be great. <laughs> <laughs> and mental upgrading is what we talk about, basically. <laughs> uh, precisely. And so, the way that this article broke it down was that greatness, uh, there are two parts. Greatness is not instantaneous and greatness is earned. So, what do we mean by it's not instantaneous? So, this is where we looked at applying ourselves or like, as Charlie Munger would say, it's the act of not doing something stupid. Uh, <laughs> I, I just reverted back to my like five-year-old comeback, which is uh. yeah. no, you're, no, you're whatever. Sorry, go. go. <laughs> um, so, um, the act of not doing something stupid over a long period of time, or maybe put conversely, is the simple act of doing good things consistently over time. Um, and so this is why the mental model of compounding interest hey, um, has a really good and poignant uh, illustration around why this 
transition of doing something menial or good on a daily basis can can um, convert into greatness because of the compounding effect of something done consistently over time. So if greatness is earned, what do we mean by that? Well, that means one, you've got to have the discipline. You've got to be able to apply yourself consistently. And that's not easy, at least I can vouch for that. But, um, and it's also more than just learning. You have to, well, I would say there's got to be a purpose or a practicality to what you're learning. And if I just learn about um, German, the language, and I never speak a word of German in my life, there's not much practicality to that. So we've got to be much more uh, thoughtful in how we're learning. And Duncan, you've given um, some really good insights into how you can actually learn well, which I like, um, you know, the way in which you apply those kinds of things. Um, but if we can then show these habits of progression over time, then this is the, the pathway that we can apply ourselves consistently to. And you'd be amazed that when you just stop and look back at yourself a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, just how far you've come and how much further you've got to go. Yeah. yeah. I'd say the more you know, the easy, you know, what you can learn is a function of what you know. So the more you know, the more you learn. And as such, each unit of learning becomes more enjoyable. Mm. So yeah, I didn't used to find reading books that much. Now it's like, I love it. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, so yeah, <laughs> audio books, if you don't do it, podcasts, you can do it while you're at your gym, you do it while commuting. It's, a, it's an epic way to help you enjoy going to the gym as an example. Yeah. All right, James, we're over time. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Bye, Duncan.